You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Transforming the Soul. This is Volume 1, translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. And this is Lecture 4, entitled The Mission of Reverence, given in Berlin on the 28th of October, 1909. You all know the words with which Goethe concluded his life's masterpiece titled Faust. Quote, All things transient are but a parable. Earth's insufficiency here finds fulfillment. The indescribable here becomes deed. The eternal feminine draws us on high. Close quote. It goes without saying that in this context the eternal feminine has nothing to do with man and woman, but that Goethe is making use of an ancient expression. All forms of mysticism, and Goethe gives the closing lines to a chorus mysticus, refer to an impulse in the soul, indeterminate at first, to seek something very special, which it does not yet understand, nor has as yet made a connection with, but to which it feels obliged to aspire. This goal, which at first the soul only dimly surmises, is called by Goethe, in accord with mystics throughout the ages, the eternal feminine. And the whole meaning of the second part of Faust confirms this way of understanding the concluding words. This chorus mysticus, with its succinct words, can be compared with the kind of unio mystica, the name given by really genuine mystical thinkers, to an unattainable union with the spiritually far-distant eternal feminine. When the soul has reached this height and feels itself to be at one with the eternal feminine, then we can speak of a mystical union, and this is the topmost peak of what we shall be speaking about in this lecture. In the previous lectures, especially in those on the mission of anger and the mission of truth, we saw that the human soul is a being that is in course of evolving. On the one hand, we spoke chiefly about attributes that the soul must strive to overcome, whereby anger, for example, can become an educator of the soul. And we saw, on the other hand, what a particularly good educator truth can be for the human soul. The soul cannot at every point foresee the end and goal of this process of development. We can place some evolving object before us and say that it has developed from an earlier form to its present stage. But we cannot say that of the human soul, because it is progressing through a continuing evolution in which it is itself the active agent. The soul must feel that having developed to a certain point, it has to go further. And as a self-aware soul, it must say to itself, How is it that I am able not only to think about my development in the past, but also about my development in the future? 
Now, we have often spoken of the fact that the true spiritual scientific observer can see the soul's inner life as being composed of three members. We cannot go over this in detail again today, but it will be good to mention it so that this lecture can be studied on its own. We call these three members of the soul the sentient soul, the rational or perceptive soul, and the consciousness soul. The sentient soul can exist without being permeated by very much thinking. Excuse me, let me read that again. The sentient soul can exist without being permeated very much by thinking. Initially, its role is to receive impressions from the outer world and pass them on to the person's inner being. It is also the vehicle of feelings of pleasure and pain, joy and grief that come from these outer impressions. All human emotions, desires, instincts and passions come from the sentient soul. Now, human beings have progressed beyond the sentient soul and ascended to higher levels. They have permeated the sentient soul with thinking and with the kind of feeling that is guided by thinking. In the rational or perceptive soul, which is the second member, we do not find indefinite feelings, arising from the depths, but feelings that gradually become permeated by the inner light of thought. At the same time, it is from the rational or perceptive soul that we find emerging by degrees the human ego, the central point of the soul that can lead to the real self and enable us to purify, cleanse and refine the qualities of our soul from within so that we become the master leading, excuse me, leader and guide of our volitions, feelings and thoughts. This ego, as we have already, as we have seen already, has two aspects. One possible path of evolution is for human beings to achieve what they are capable of achieving, the acquisition of a stronger and stronger center to their being, so that they can by degrees radiate a greater human strength both for the benefit of the environment and for the whole of life. To fill the soul with more and more inner content, making it more and more valuable for the world, and at the same time more and more independent, this is one aspect of ego development. The reverse of this evolution of the self is self-seeking egoism. Too weak a self will lose itself in life. However, People who want to keep their pleasures, wishes, their thinking and brooding all for themselves harden their ego being in self-seeking and egoism. This describes briefly the content of the rational or perceptive soul. We have seen how untamed passions such as anger educate the soul if they are overcome. We have seen also that the rational or perceptive soul is really educated by truth, when truth is understood as something one has to take hold of completely within oneself, and which one should take account of at all times, something which, despite being an inner possession, leads us out of ourselves, enlarging the ego and making it stronger and stronger and more selfless in its own right. These, then, are the means of self-education provided for the sentient soul and rational soul. Our question must now be, is there a similar remedy provided for the consciousness soul, the highest member of the human soul? 
we can also ask, what is there in the consciousness soul that develops of its own accord, corresponding to the instincts and desires in the sentient soul? Is there something that belongs by nature to the consciousness soul, such that human beings could acquire very little of it if they were not already endowed with it? There is something that reaches out from the rational soul to the consciousness soul, and this is thinking, thinking with its strength and cleverness. The consciousness soul can develop only because human beings are thinkers. For the consciousness soul, with its self-awareness, has to know both the world and itself. Where the outer world, the world of the senses, is concerned, provided we devote ourselves to it and do not stand blankly in front of it, our sensations and perceptions will stimulate us to acquire knowledge of our surroundings. With regard to gaining knowledge of the supersensible world, however, we are in quite a different situation. For a start, the supersensible world does not force itself upon us. If we want to gain knowledge of it and fill our consciousness soul with it, The drive to do so must come from within and thoroughly stimulate our thinking. And this drive has to come from forces already present in the soul, which are feeling and willing. Unless our thinking is stimulated by both these forces, it will never be urged to enter a supersensible world. This is not saying that the supersensible world is only a feeling but that feeling and will must be the guide that leads us from within ourselves into the supersensible element. The goal of our search is not the force that guides us. Human beings have to seek the supersensible world because, to start with, it is something that is unknown. Right from the beginning, starting in our own soul, we need feeling and will as a guide. What qualities, then, must feeling and willing acquire if they are to become this guide to the spiritual world? First of all, someone might object that we intend to make feeling a guide to knowledge. But a simple consideration will show that feeling has to be a guide to knowledge. Anyone who takes knowledge seriously will admit that in acquiring knowledge he ought to proceed logically. We use logic for proving the knowledge we acquire. But if we are using logic as an instrument, how can logic itself be proved? One might say logic can prove itself. Yes, but before we begin proving logic by logic, it must be at least possible to grasp logic with our feeling. Logical thinking cannot be proved primarily by logical thinking, but only by feeling. In fact, everything that constitutes logic is in the first place proved through feeling, by our soul's infallible feeling for truth. From this classical example we can see that logic itself is based on feeling, that feeling supplies a foundation for thinking. What kind of feeling do we need if it is to provide the drive not only for thinking in general, but for thinking about worlds with which we are at first unacquainted and cannot survey. Feeling of this kind must be a force that strives from within toward an object as yet unknown. When the human soul wants to encompass with feeling some other thing, 
we call this feeling love. Love can, of course, be felt for something known, and there are many things in the world for us to love. But as love is a feeling, and feeling is the foundation of thinking in the widest sense, we can realize that it ought to be possible for the unknown, supersensible element to be grasped by feeling first before we can think about it. Unprejudiced observation accordingly shows that it must be possible for human beings to come to love the unknown, supersensible realm before they are able to conceive of it in terms of thought. To love the supersensible before we are capable of illuminating it with thought is not only possible but is indispensable. But the will also can be filled with a force which reaches out toward the supersensible unknown before thinking is capable of doing so. This quality of will, which enables people to wish to carry out their aims with regard to the unknown, is devotion. While the will can supply devotion to the unknown, feeling can become love of the unknown, and when the two combine together, they give rise to reverence in the true sense of the word. Then when reverence arises as the mutual fructification of this love and devotion, it will become the driving force that will lead into the unknown in such a way that thinking can grasp it. This then is how reverence becomes the educator of the consciousness soul. For in ordinary life also, we can say that when people endeavor to grasp with their thinking some external reality not yet known to them, they will be approaching it with love and devotion. The consciousness soul will never acquire knowledge of anything, even of something external, if we do not approach it with love and devotion. For we shall fail to get really involved in anything if we do not meet it with the combined strength of these two forces, which give rise to reverence. This is what leads us to knowledge of the unknown. This is the case in ordinary life, but it applies quite specially with regard to the supersensible realm. In every instance of soul education, however, it is the ego that is the active agent, the central point of the soul life, the source of our consciousness of self. Having seen that the ego gains increasing independence and strength by overcoming certain soul qualities, such as anger, and by cultivating others, such as the sense of truth, we now have to say that the ego's self-education does not stop at this point, but continues through reverence. Anger needs to be overcome and discarded. A sense of truth has to fill the ego. Reverence has to flow from the ego toward the thing that needs to be known. In this way, the ego raises itself out of the sentient soul and the rational soul by overcoming anger and other passions and by cultivating a sense of truth. And now it is increasingly drawn toward becoming a consciousness soul through the influence of devotion. As this power of devotion becomes stronger and stronger, then we can speak of it becoming a potent force, raising us up toward the realm described by Goethe in the words, All things, quote, 
all things transient are but a parable. Earth's insufficiency here finds fulfillment. The indescribable here becomes deed. The eternal feminine draws us on high. Through the strength of its reverence, the soul is drawn toward the eternal with which it longs to unite. The ego, however, has two sides. It is impelled by necessity to continually enhance its own strength and activity, and at the same time it has the task not to allow itself to fall under the hardening influence of egoism. If the ego continues to advance in its pursuit of knowledge of the unknown supersensible and takes reverence as its guide, it is exposed to the immediate danger of losing itself. This is most likely to happen to people if their will is always devoted submissively to the world. If this attitude increasingly gains the upper hand, the result may be that the ego goes out of itself and loses itself in the other being to which it is devoted. This condition of soul can be likened to the soul becoming faint, as distinct from the body fainting. In the latter state, the ego sinks into indefinite darkness. In soul fainting, the ego is lost from the soul element, while the bodily faculties and perceptions of the outer world are not impaired. This can happen if the ego is no longer strong enough to guide the will. This would be the extreme form of what is called mortification of the will. People who pursue this course become incapable of willing or acting on their own account. They have surrendered their will to the object of their submissive devotion and have lost their own self. When this condition prevails, it produces a a lasting impotence of the soul. Only when a devotional feeling is warmed through by the ego so that these people can immerse themselves in it without losing their ego can it be salutary for the soul. How then can reverence always keep the ego within it? The ego cannot allow itself to be led in any direction as a human self unless it maintains in its thinking a knowledge of itself. Now from the start, thinking exists in the consciousness soul as a natural gift. Nothing else can protect the ego from losing itself when devotion draws it out into the world. If the soul is let out of itself by the will, it has to make sure that when it goes beyond the realm of the senses, it is illuminated by the light of thought. Thinking itself cannot lead the soul out. This comes about through devotion. But thinking must then immediately exert itself to permeate with the light of thought the object of the soul's devotion. In other words, there must be a resolve to think about the object to which one is devoted. Directly, the devotional impetus loses hold of the will to think there is a danger of losing oneself. If people make it a matter of principle not to think about the object of their devotion, this can lead in extreme cases to a lasting debility of soul. Is love, the other element in reverence, exposed to a similar fate? Something must be poured into the love, something that radiates from the human self 
toward the unknown thing so that the force of the ego is sustained every moment. The ego must have the will to enter into everything that is to form the object of its devotion and to maintain itself in face of the unknown, supersensible entity that is to be lovingly embraced. What happens to this love if the ego fails to maintain itself as far as the actual encounter with the unknown and is unwilling to bring the light of rational judgment to bear on it? Love turns into wild enthusiasm, raving. But as the ego lives in the rational soul, it can begin to find its way to the external unknown, where, however, it can no longer be altogether extinguished. Unlike the will, the ego cannot completely mortify itself. When the soul seeks to embrace what is outside with feeling, the ego is always present there. But if it is not supported also by thinking and willing, it rushes forth without restraint in an unconscious state. And if this love for the unknown object is not accompanied by resolute thinking, the soul can become addicted to wild enthusiasm, somewhat like sleepwalking, just as the state reached by the soul when submissive devotion leads to loss of the self is somewhat like a bodily fainting fit. Wild enthusiasts, ravers, are the sort of people who leave behind them the strength of their ego when they meet the unknown and make use solely of the ego's secondary forces. Since the strength of the ego is absent from their consciousness, they try to grasp the unknown as one does in dreaming. Under these conditions, the soul falls into what may be called a continuous state of dreaming or somnambulism. People like this, who are unable to relate properly to the world and to other people, rush about in life because they shrink from using the light of thought to illuminate their situation. They are bound to go astray and become like will-o'-the-wisps in the world. The weaker the consciousness of self, the easier it is to become a raver, And just because the soul succumbs to mental laziness and shuns the light of thought, it is specially prone to harbor superstitions in one form or another. In this state, the soul is particularly inclined to believe in everything blindly, to avoid the effort of thinking for itself, and to allow truth and knowledge to be dictated to it. For this, no effort is needed to think creatively. To acquire knowledge of an external object perceived by the senses, no creative thinking is needed, either. But in seeking to gain knowledge of something supersensible in whatever form, we must never try to do this with the exclusion of thinking. Directly we rely on merely observing it, we are exposed to all possible deceptions and errors. All such errors and superstitions all the wrong and untruthful ways of entering the supersensible worlds can be attributed in the last instance to a refusal to allow consciousness to be illuminated by the light of creative thought. No one can be deceived by anything offering knowledge of the spiritual world if they have the will to apply creative thinking. Nothing else will suffice 
And this is something which every spiritual researcher will confirm. And the greater the will is to engage creative thinking, all the greater will the opportunity will be the opportunity to gain true, clear, and certain knowledge of spiritual worlds. Thus we see the need for a means of self-education of the ego that will lead it more and more up into the consciousness soul and help the consciousness soul to learn to deal with all its encounters, both in the physical and in the unknown supersensible world. And this need is filled by reverence, composed of love and devotion. When the latter are infused with the right kind of self-awareness, they become steps leading to ever greater heights. True reverence in whatever form it is experienced, prayer or otherwise, can never mislead us. The best way of learning something is to approach it first with love and devotion. And a sound education will have to give particular attention to the amount of strength given to the developing soul of the child through an inclusion of the quality of reverence. To children the world is largely unknown. The best way to teach them to know and judge this unknown world is to awaken in them a feeling of reverence toward it, for well-directed reverence will equip them best for coping with life in every way. Oh, it means a lot for a person's soul life, also for later life, if they can look back to a childhood in which they often felt a respect which increased to the point of reverence. People who in their childhood could, on many, many occasions, look up to people they respected and gaze with heartfelt reverence at things that were still beyond their understanding, have a good basis for further development in later life. People will always gratefully remember those occasions when as children they were lucky to hear in their family circle of some outstanding personality whom everyone spoke of with devotion and reverence. The whole being of the child is filled with a holy awe which can make reverence into something very tender and intimate. With feelings born of reverence, people tell of the occasion when, with a trembling hand, they took hold of the door handle and shyly made their way into the room of the revered person whom they were seeing for the first time after having heard them spoken of with so much respectful admiration. Simply to have come into the person's presence and exchanged a few words that spring from reverence will be one of the best helps when, later on in life, they endeavor to solve the great riddles of existence and reach up to ideals they long to make their own. Reverence is a force particularly well equipped to draw us upward and by so doing fortify and invigorate the soul. How does this happen? Let us look at the way we express reverence, at the very gestures themselves. We bend our knees, put our hands together and incline our heads toward the object of our reverence. These are the human organs through which the ego and especially our higher soul faculties come to expression most intensely. In physical life, human beings stand upright by keeping their legs straight. Their ego radiates out through their hands in acts of blessing. And by moving their head, they can observe the heavens and the earth. By studying human nature, however, we learn that when our straight legs are stretched in strong conscious action, they do their best 
if they have first learned to bend the knee where reverence is really due. For this genuflection opens the way for a force which seeks to find its way into our organism. Knees which stretch without ever having learned to bend in reverence convey only their own triviality to which they have added nothing. But legs which have deigned to bend receive, when they stretch, a new force. And now it is this and not their own triviality which they can spread around them. Hands that would gladly bring blessing and comfort without having been clasped in reverent devotion have not much love and blessing to give out of their own triviality. But hands which have learned to fold in reverence have received a force which can flow forth from the hand, for it is a hand that is now powerfully permeated by the ego. For the force received through folded hands passes through the heart in kindling love, and when it flows again into the hands it becomes blessing. And the head, too, however much it beholds of the world, confronts it only with its own triviality, unless it has bent in reverence when a new force enters it, and the feeling this engenders is given back to the world. Anyone who, with a sound sense for it, studies people's gestures and understands the living connections will see how reverence is expressed in external physiognomy and realize how this reverence enhances the strength of the ego, enabling it to penetrate into the unknown. For if we want to penetrate into things unknown, we have to offer them our competent capacities, and this we do if we approach them with love and devotion. In fact, reverence makes the ego not weaker, but stronger and stronger. Self-education, through reverence, has the effect of raising our obscure instincts and emotions, our sympathies and antipathies, which otherwise would make their way into the soul unconsciously or subconsciously, unchallenged by the light of judgment. Precisely these feelings are cleansed and purified by way of the education the ego receives through reverence and through its penetrating more and more into the higher members of the soul. The obscure forces of sympathy and antipathy, which are prone to error, are permeated by the light of the soul and transformed into judgment, feeling judgment, either aesthetic taste or rightly directed moral feeling. A soul that has been educated by reverence will convert its dark cravings and aversions into what we can call a feeling for the beautiful and a feeling for the good. A soul whose will has been cleansed in the right way by devoted reverence will gradually, by having re-won its self-respect and self-confidence, turn its otherwise dark instincts gradually into moral deeds. Reverence is something we plant in the soul as seed, and it bears good fruit. Life offers yet another example. We see that in the course of life we pass through both an ascending and a descending stage. Childhood and youth show an ascending stage. Then there is a pause in development and in later life there is a decline. In a certain sense we can say that the descending stage of evolution shows the reverse of what has developed in the first stage. 
yet the qualities acquired in childhood and youth appear again in later life in a remarkable way. If much reverence, rightly guided, has been part of the experience of childhood, it acts as a seed which comes to fruition in old age as the strength to deal with life. A childhood and youth in which there was no reverence, in which neither a devoted will nor feelings of love were developed, will lead to an old age lacking in strength. Reverence is essential to every soul that is to make progress in its development. How is it then with the corresponding quality in the object of our reverence? If we turn with love to another person, then the reciprocated love will reveal what can possibly arise. Can we speak in the same reciprocal sense of reverence? That this is not generally the case will be seen if we realize the following. When people are lovingly devoted to their God, they can be sure that God responds to them also in love. Reverence is the feeling they foster toward whatever name they give to their God in the universe. But we cannot call the response to reverence a kind of reverence too. We cannot speak of divine reverence for man. What then is this in this context is the opposite of reverence. What comes to meet reverence when reverence looks up to the divine? It is that which it can encompass neither with its will nor with its strength. It is might. And where it concerns the divine, it is the almighty. What we acquire through reverence in youth returns to us in old age as strength for living. And if we turn in reverence to the divine, it flows back to us as an experience of the Almighty. That is what we feel, whether we look up to the starry heavens in their infinite glory, and our reverence glows for all that surrounds us on all sides and is beyond our comprehension, or whether we look up to our invisible God, in whatever form, living and moving throughout the universe. We look up in reverence to the Almighty, and we come to feel with certainty that we cannot advance toward a union with what is above us unless we first of all approach it from below with reverence. We draw nearer to the Almighty when we immerse ourselves in reverence. Thus we can rightly speak of an Almighty, omnipotence, while a true feeling for words prevents us from speaking of an omni-love, all-love, Might can increase in proportion to the number of beings over which it rules. It is different with love. If a mother loves her child, this does not prevent her loving her second, third, and fourth child just as much as the first. It would be wrong to say, I must divide my love because it has to cover two people. It is wrong, too, to speak of an all-knowledge, in quotes, or of an indefinite all-love. Love has no degree and cannot be restricted to figures. Love is one part of reverence, and devotion is the other. And it is the same with devotion as it is with love. If we feel devotion, we can feel it for more than one unknown thing. Devotion can be enhanced, but it does not have to be divided or multiplied when it is felt for a number of things. 
Since this is true of love also, the ego, which should be a unity, does not need to lose or fragment itself if it turns either in love or devotion to a number of unknown entities. Love and devotion are thus the right guides to the unknown and the means of educating the soul in its advance from the rational soul to the consciousness soul. Whereas the overcoming of anger educates the sentient soul and the striving for truth educates the rational soul, reverence educates the consciousness soul, bringing more and more knowledge within its reach. But this reverence must be led and guided from a standpoint which never shuts out the light of thought. When love streams forth from us, it ensures by its own worth that our own self can go with it, and the same applies to devotion. We could indeed lose our own self, but we need not. This is what matters and must be kept especially in mind if the stimulating of reverence becomes part of the education of the young. A blind, unconscious reverence must be avoided. The cultivation of reverence must go hand in hand with the evolution of a sound ego feeling. Whereas the mystics of all ages, together with Goethe, have spoken of the unknown, undefined element to which the soul is drawn as the eternal feminine, we may, without being misunderstood, speak of that element that must all the time in spirit reverence as the eternal masculine. For just as the eternal feminine is present in both man and woman, so is this eternal masculine, this healthy feeling of self, present in all reverence, whether in man or woman. And having been shown Goethe's chorus mysticus, we may say, now being acquainted with the mission of reverence, which leads us toward the unknown, add the element which must inspirit all reverence, the eternal masculine. So we are now enabled, through what we have heard about the mission of reverence, to reach a right understanding of what the human soul experiences when it strives to unite with the unknown and attains to the unio mystica, the mystic union, wherein all reverence is consummated. But this mystical union will harm the soul if the ego loses itself while seeking to unite with the unknown. The ego will also bring nothing of value to the unknown if it loses itself in the process. To be able to sacrifice oneself to the unio mystica requires that one must have become something, must have something to sacrifice. If a weak ego unites with what is above it, the union has no value. The unio mystica has value only when a strong ego ascends to the regions of which the chorus mystica speaks. Goethe speaks of the regions to which more exalted reverence can lead us in order to acquire there the highest knowledge. And his chorus mysticus tells us of it in these beautiful words, quote, All things transient are but a parable. Earth's insufficiency here finds fulfillment. The indescribable here becomes deed. The eternal feminine draws us on high. Close quote. Then, if we rightly understand the unio mystica, we can reply, yes, 
quote, all things transient are but a parable. Earth's insufficiency here finds fulfillment. The indescribable here becomes deed. The eternal masculine draws us on high. The end of Lecture 4